We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 315 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, May 16th, 2022, the day after a two-day stretch of a number of Game 7s in the NBA playoffs and the Stanley Cup playoffs. That is one of the great phrases in all of sports, right? Game 7. Well, we on Sunday in the second round of the NBA playoffs had maybe the single worst Game 7 performance by any team ever. Uh, The Phoenix Suns, the number one seed in the Western Conference, the team that by far had the best record in the NBA in the 2021-2022 regular season. That team was pathetic in a 123-90 Game 7 home loss to the Dallas Mavericks on Sunday night. The Suns, over the first three quarters, scored a mere 50 points. Yes, 50 points for the Suns over the first three quarters on Sunday night in a home Game 7 against the 8-seed in the Western Conference. Uh, That 8-seed, the Mavericks, a team for which former Wizard Spencer Dinwiddie is a player player. And Dinwiddie on Sunday night, again, was great. Dinwiddie on Sunday night in 25 minutes, 24 seconds off the bench, five of seven on threes. He scored 30 points. In fact, Dinwiddie and the great Luka Doncic on Sunday night became the first pair of teammates with 30 points each in an NBA Game 7 since Kobe Bryant and Shaquille O'Neal for the Los Angeles Lakers against the Sacramento Kings in Game 7 of the 2002 Western Conference Finals. That Game 7 is a legendary NBA Game 7 for all kinds of reasons, but Spencer Dinwiddie has been so good for the Mavericks. The same Spencer Dinwiddie who the Wizards last August acquired from the Brooklyn Nets in a sign-and-trade as part of a five-team mega-trade. The same Spencer Dinwiddie, who the Wizards, for whatever reason, ended up despising. And so the Wizards, on NBA trade deadline day this past February 10th, traded Dinwiddie and Davies Bertans to the Mavericks for Chris Dapps Porzingis and a protected 2022 second-round pick. Now look, maybe the trade ends up working out beautifully for our Wizards. Porzingis was good for the Wizards in his time playing for them 
this season. But geez, this is not a good look for the Wizards, okay? They acquired Dinwiddie to be their point guard for years to come. Things went so poorly that the Wizards traded Dinwiddie six months after getting him, and now he's killing it for the Mavericks, who just knocked off the number one team in the NBA playoffs. Oh, by the way, Sunday was the 25th anniversary of the Wizards officially changing from the Bullets to the Wizards. Yes, 25 years ago now that happened. And here we are 25 years later, and I still much prefer Bullets to Wizards, and the team 100% should go back to being the Bullets. Hello and welcome to a Monday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. I hope that you had a nice weekend. There is so much bad news in the real world right now. Uh, thank God for sports. I hope that all of you are well. You know, we on this podcast certainly are aware of everything going on, but this is a Washington, D.C. sports podcast. Uh, I do not cram news or politics or social views down your throat on this podcast. You listen to this podcast, presumably, to hear about D.C. sports, to get away from the real world. And so let us get away, although uh, our world of D.C. sports now includes yet another early round exit for the Capitals in the Stanley Cup playoffs. You know, also on Sunday night was the Pittsburgh Penguins losing at the New York Rangers 4-3 in overtime in Game 7 in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Penguins in this series, yes, dealt with a lot of injuries, but also for the Penguins in this series was them blowing a 3-1 series lead. And so with the Pens being the arch rivals to our Caps, I normally would be laughing at the Penguins right now. I would be mocking the Penguins right now, especially because my wife is from Pittsburgh and is a Penguins fan. But who am I as a Caps fan to be mocking any other NHL team right now. Uh, Coming up, I will go in-depth on the Caps losing to the Florida Panthers four games to two in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs. I'll address what went wrong for our Caps in the series and what the proper outlook for the Caps moving forward should be. Uh, I'll react to key comments on Sunday morning from Caps Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan and Head Coach Peter Laviolette. I'll take you through multiple key injury reveals from Caps players on Sunday morning and much more. This podcast is not some Johnny come lately on the Caps, okay? I've been talking Caps after every game throughout this season, and we have a lot to get into with the Caps of them losing in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a fourth consecutive year and losing in a first or second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a 29th time in 32 all-time postseason appearances. Boy, it hurts to say that. Uh, Thank God that the Caps won the Stanley Cup in 2018. Imagine if that hadn't happened. Uh, Next segment, I'm talking Commanders. I have a lot more for you on the Commanders 2022 regular season schedule, which came out this past Thursday night. Specifically, more on what is by far the worst thing about their schedule. And this thing really is an outrage, okay? So we will get properly outraged next segment, uh, during which I'll also play something from former Redskins quarterback Robert Griffin III that I do think you'll enjoy hearing. Uh, And I'll talk Nationals and Orioles on the show off each team having a rough weekend. Uh, The Nats lost two or three games to the Houston Astros at Nationals Park in the return of former Nats manager and current Astros manager Dusty Baker to Nationals Park. The O's got swept over three games at the lowly Detroit Tigers. Uh, The O's are dealing with a number of injuries right now, but still swept at the Tigers. Uh, And the O's scored just three runs the entire series. You can tweet me 
at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Stanley Evans on the Commander's 2022 regular season schedule, right, Stanley? What's up, Galdi? So I'll be the first to say, I'm not really a fan of schedule releases. It's really a week-to-week league, and some teams we're facing might be better than we think. But this schedule compared to last year's is a complete 180. My first thought is this schedule really doesn't scare me. And if we can't get 10 or 11 wins this year, does this whole roster and coaching staff get completely blown up? Uh, Thank you for the email, Stanley. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I think that this schedule is a very manageable schedule, even with a certain something that I'm going to be talking about at length next segment. I think that the bar for the commanders this coming season is a winning record and or making the playoffs. If either one of those things happens, and I think that Ron Rivera and his staff are safe, if the team has a losing record, especially if the team has a double-digit loss season, then I do think that major changes could be made. Although, they wouldn't definitely be made. Like, I'm not convinced that Ron will be fired if the commander's this coming season go say seven and ten again, but I think that he could be fired if that happens. Um, and you know, obviously, if the record is appreciably worse than seven and ten, I mean, if the Commanders have some crater season and go you know five and twelve, four and thirteen, something like that, then yeah, I think significant changes could be coming. Uh, but for the record, I don't expect the Commanders to have a double digit loss season this coming season. I actually think that our team. Uh, could be pretty good. Lots of feedback on the end of the capital season. Email from Mike King writes, Mike, 0-4 in the playoffs since the Cup. What now? They have mostly wasted Alexander Ovechkin. <laughs> Thank you for the email, Mike. Yeah, saying that the Caps have mostly wasted Alex Ovechkin might be a bit harsh, uh, but I get what you're saying. I mean, the Caps absolutely should have more than one deep run in the Stanley Cup playoffs over Ovechkin's time with the team. There's no doubt about that. And I'm not even saying that the Caps need to have won multiple Stanley Cup titles with Ovechkin, but how about at least multiple appearances in the Eastern Conference Final, you know? The Caps have made the Stanley Cup playoffs 14 times with Alex Ovechkin. 13 of the 14 postseason appearances have ended in a first or second round. Email from another Mike, Mike P on the Caps, writes Mike P., What a surprise, not that the Caps are heading home after the first round. I'm numb to this feeling now. Had all the chances in the world to move forward. When you talk about a game of inches, hockey is that sport. I don't know what needs to happen, but something has to change. They are too much the same. Wish I had more to say, but I'm just upset that a team that has been to the playoffs so much can be so disappointing so early. It's frustrating. Uh, Thank you for the email, Mike. I'm with you, man. Uh, It is frustrating. And the Caps' lack of playoff success is incredibly disappointing. Uh, Much more on the end of the Caps season coming up in just a bit. But unlike our Caps in the Stanley Cup playoffs, the law firm of Paulson and Nace does not disappoint. Paulson and Nace is a Washington, D.C.-based family law firm that handles medical malpractice, personal injury, birth injury, and consumer protection cases offering aggressive advocacy for victims in Washington, D.C. and West Virginia. The law firm of Paulson and Nace is always there for you. Paulson and Nace can help your family make difficult decisions. And Paulson and Nace is excellent at what it does. Paulson and Nace has recovered millions of dollars for the sick and injured. I've known the Naces for 25 plus years. Chris Nace is a past president of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. Matt Nace is a member of the board of the D.C. Trial Lawyers. It's very simple. If you have a case, contact Paulson 
and Nace. If you feel that you've been wronged, if you think that you've been wronged but aren't sure, call Paulson and Nace and schedule a no-obligation appointment. You can call Paulson and Nace at 202-902-7611. That's 202-902-7611. When you call, make sure that you tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Schedule a no-obligation appointment by calling 202-902-7611. You can also visit paulsonandnace.com. That's paulsonandnace.com. And don't forget to tell Paulson and Nace that Al Galdi sent you. Paulson and Nace, when tragedy happens, let the family of Paulson and Nace take care of your family. So we on Friday's show, episode 314, talked a lot about the Commander's 2022 regular season schedule, which came out last Thursday night. And what I gave you on Friday's show were my like initial impressions of the schedule, which I said overall is a good schedule for the Commanders. It's a schedule that to me contains a lot to like if you're a Commanders fan. However, I did note one thing in particular that I did not like about the Commanders 2022 regular season schedule. And that thing was that the schedule gives the Commanders an NFL worst tying five games in which the Commanders will play off having had less rest than their opponent has had. Uh, Well, given the benefit of time over the weekend, I had a chance to take a closer look at these five games. And what the NFL has given the Commanders with four of these games is pretty remarkable and honestly, pretty ridiculous. Uh, Four instances in the 2022 regular season of the Commanders playing on shorter rest than their opponent will have had will take place over the final nine weeks of the 2022 regular season. But wait, there's more. Uh, Each of those four instances will feature the Commander's opponent having played on the Thursday of the previous NFL week and thus having had nine days of rest as opposed to the Commander's having had six days of rest. So the Commanders, four times over the final nine weeks of the 2022 regular season, will play an opponent that has had not just more rest than the Commanders will have had, but three more days of rest than the Commanders will have had. Uh, That's substantial, and that really is ridiculous. Uh, The four instances of this are weeks 10, 13, 16, and 18. Uh, The Commanders in week 10 will be at the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday Night Football on November 14th. The Eagles in Week 9 will be at the Houston Texans on Thursday Night Football on November 3rd. The Commanders in Week 9 will be home to the Minnesota Vikings on Sunday afternoon, November 6th. Uh, The Commanders in Week 13 will be at the New York Giants on Sunday afternoon, December 4th. The Giants in Week 12 will be at the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, which this year is on November 24th. The Commanders in Week 12 will be home to the Atlanta Falcons on Sunday afternoon, November 27th. The Commanders in Week 16 will be at the San Francisco 49ers on Saturday afternoon, December 24th, Christmas Eve. The 49ers in Week 15 will be at the Seattle Seahawks on Thursday Night Football on December 15th. The Commanders in Week 15 will be home to the New York Giants on Sunday afternoon, December 18th. And the Commanders in Week 18 will be home to the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday, January 8th. The Cowboys in Week 17 will be at the Tennessee Titans on Thursday Night Football on December 29th. The Commanders in Week 17 will be home to the Cleveland Browns on Sunday afternoon, January 1st, New Year's Day. So, in Weeks 10, 
13, 16, and 18 in games at the Eagles, Giants, and 49ers, and then home to the Cowboys, the Commanders will be playing off having had three fewer days of rest than the opposing team has had. Uh, Three of those four games, obviously, are, right, NFC East games. All four of those games are NFC games. This really is a bad job by the NFL. I mean, it's almost like the NFL can't stand our team and or our owner. But we know that that could never, ever be true. And if you're wondering, well, how much does having three fewer days of rest than your opponent has matter? Well, the answer is a lot. Uh, Know this, NFL teams in the 2021 regular season, when having at least three more days of rest than an opponent had, went 33-23-1. and Yeah, 10 games above 500. 33-23-1. and Uh, The other instance in the 2022 regular season of the Commanders playing on shorter rest than their opponent has will be the Commanders' Week 11 game at the Houston Texans on Sunday afternoon, November 20th. Uh, The Texans in Week 10 will be at the New York Giants on Sunday afternoon, November 13th. The Commanders in Week 10 will be at the Philadelphia Eagles on Monday Night Football on November 14th. So the Commanders for their game at the Texans will only have a negative one-day rest differential. But the Commanders, four times over the final nine weeks of the 2022 regular season, will have a negative three-day rest differential. One of the best and smartest people when it comes to writing and talking about the NFL is NFL analytics pioneer Warren Sharp of sharpfootballanalysis.com. Warren has a formula for ranking NFL teams going into seasons based on the team's preparation and rest advantages as afforded to the teams via their regular season schedules. Uh, Warren looks at a variety of things for an NFL team with its regular season schedule, uh, including how often the team has more or less rest than an opponent has, how many short week road games the team has, how many road games off Sunday night or Monday night games that a team has. So these things and other items get baked into a formula, and we then get Warren Sharp's prep slash rest rankings for the upcoming NFL season. Well, understand, Washington now has had two consecutive hideous prep slash rest rankings. Washington for the 2021 regular season ranked number 30 out of 32 NFL teams in prep slash rest. And the Commanders for the 2022 regular season ranked number 27 out of 32 NFL teams in prep slash rest. Uh, Not good. The NFL is screwing our team with its regular season schedules in terms of preparation and rest. And this should not happen. You know, you're going to have years in which your schedule is less favorable than other teams' schedules. I get that. But You know, it shouldn't be that your team in back-to-back years ranks so low in prep slash rest. I mean, what is that about? And again, this coming regular season, four times, four times over the final nine weeks, the commanders will be playing off having had three fewer days of rest than the opposing team has had. Again, it's almost like the NFL can't stand our team and or our owner, but we know that that could never, ever be the case. Uh, Now, all of this said, I do still believe that there is a lot to like about the Commander's 2022 regular season schedule. It does set up to be one of the easier schedules in the NFL. 
in terms of opposing teams. And again, I go back to Warren Sharp. You know, forget about opposing teams' records from the previous season. That's a bad way of figuring out strength of schedule. Warren does his strength of schedule rankings for upcoming seasons based on projected win totals from Las Vegas odds makers. Warren on March 31st ranked the commanders as having the easiest schedule in the NFL for the 2022 regular season. Now, Warren's updated strength of schedule rankings that came out on May 11th had the commanders as having the sixth easiest schedule in the NFL for the 2022 regular season. But still, the commander's schedule is one of the easier schedules for the upcoming regular season. Also, the commanders in the 2022 regular season will travel among the fewest miles in the NFL. Uh, The commanders have a good chance to both start and end their 2022 regular season well, as the commanders' first two games are against the two worst teams in the NFL last regular season, home to the Jacksonville Jaguars in week one and at the Detroit Lions in week two. And then the final five weeks of the commanders' 2022 regular season are a week 14 bye week, and then three home games over the final four weeks, home to the New York Giants in week 15, at the San Francisco 49ers in week 16, home to the Cleveland Browns in week 17, and home to the Dallas Cowboys in week 18. There's also this, the commanders' first two NFC East games in the 2022 regular season will feature the commanders playing off having had more rest than their opponent had. A week three, home to the Philadelphia Eagles, who will be coming off a Monday nighter in week two, and week four at the Dallas Cowboys, who will be coming off a Monday nighter in week three. So there is a lot to like about the commanders' 2022 regular season schedule, but the biggest thing not to like is a really bad thing for the team. And the thing is a thing that really should never happen if you actually care about competitive balance. Four times over the final nine weeks, the commanders will be playing off having had three fewer days of rest than the opposing team has had. I tell you, it's almost like the NFL can't stand our team and or our owner. But of course, that would never, ever be true. Well, speaking of Dan Snyder, uh, one of his most favorite Redskins players ever, Robert Griffin III. Uh, He now is a college football and NFL analyst for ESPN. How about this from RG3 on ESPN's NFL Live on Friday? The Washington Commanders have surprise Super Bowl contender written all over them. The reason they went and got Carson Wentz is because if he plays like he did last year, they will at least be in playoff contention because it was better than the quarterback play they had last year. But if he can turn the clock back to 2017 where he was an MVP candidate, he can help lead the Washington Commanders on a deep playoff push. They're loaded at wide receivers. Scary Terry. They got a healthy Curtis Samuel and Jaha Dotson that they just drafted from Penn State. And that defensive line, Chase Young, Montez Sweat, Dayron Payne, Jonathan Allen, that defensive line has to show up. That, that defense underperformed last year, and because of that, they struggled collectively as a team. But if they can get all those ifs, and it's a lot of ifs to go together, their roster is stacked, and it's the best roster Washington has had in at least the last 10 years. So how'd you like that from Robert Griffin III? Quote, the Washington Commanders have surprise Super Bowl contender written all over them. End quote. And we had RG3 talking up the Commanders roster, including the receivers and the defensive line, including this new guy who the Commanders apparently have gotten, Dayron Payne. Dayron Payne. Yeah, Dayron Payne. I'm really excited to watch Dayron play 
for the Commanders. This new guy, Dayron Payne, who the Commanders have acquired. Boy, I hope he really helps out that defensive line. Dayron Payne. Yeah, Dayron Payne. I'm pumped to see what Dayron is all about. Uh, yeah, I get a kick out of people mispronouncing names. I just find it funny. We all do it, by the way. I've done it too. Uh, you know, Robert Griffin III is good on TV. He speaks clearly. He speaks effectively. He has opinions. Whether he actually believes that the commanders have surprise Super Bowl contender written all over them, uh, I don't know, okay? He may have just said that to get some attention, and here I am, right, giving him attention. So if he said what he said for attention, then the tactic did work. Uh, but it was interesting to hear that from Robert. Commanders, surprise Super Bowl contender, written all over them. Well, what's written all over the Washington, D.C. area real estate market right now is competition. Uh, that's why if you are on the hunt for a new home in the D.C. area, you got to get with Kellen Hunt. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs and make sure that you tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. The D.C. area real estate market is hot. Homes are going under contract quickly after they are listed, and that coupled with low inventory means that if you're wanting to buy a home in the D.C. area, you need a smart realtor who can put together an offer that wins. This is where Kellen Hunt comes in. He wins. Kellen Hunt understands the market, and he is here for you to listen to what you want and then get you what you want. No matter your age, family situation, or financial situation, Kellen Hunt can help you. Kellen Hunt is a real estate agent for real people. He has a wealth of knowledge when it comes to local neighborhoods, economical development, schools, market conditions, and all that makes the Washington, D.C. area unique. And Kellen Hunt is willing to put a portion of his commission back in your pocket. Yes, you, the buyer, get a piece of the action. Kellen Hunt knows what buyers like you are facing, and he wants to help. So visit CloseItWithKell.com. That's CloseItWithKell, K-E-L-L.com. Book a call with Kellen Hunt to discuss your real estate needs, and make sure that you tell Kell that Al Galdi sent you. You have nothing to lose. Visit CloseItWithKell.com. Book an introductory call with Kellen Hunt at CloseItWithKell.com. If you're trying to buy a home in the Washington, D.C. area, you will do well. By going with Kel, visit CloseItWithKel.com and tell Kel that Al Galdi sent you. All right, let's talk Capitals. Uh, I always have been and always will be a Caps fan. I will never not be a Caps fan. And if you're like me and are a Caps fan, you are very familiar with what we're feeling right now. And what we're feeling right now is playoff disappointment. This has become an oh-so-familiar feeling for us as Caps fans. Whether you have been a Caps fan for 40 years or 30 years or 20 years or 10 years or 5 years, you are familiar with Caps' playoff disappointment. And unfortunately, we now have another instance of Caps' playoff disappointment to add to the mix. Uh, the Caps' 2021-2022 season ended on Friday night, ended with a 4-3 overtime loss to the Florida Panthers at Capital One Arena in Game 6 of a first-round series in the Stanley Cup playoffs as the Caps lost the series four games to two and as the Caps' pain and the Stanley Cup playoffs continued. Now, yes, the Caps did win the Stanley Cup in 2018, and that was, of course, glorious, and that, of course, will never be forgotten. But 
The bigger picture for the Caps in their postseason history remains remarkably disappointing. Uh, The Caps this season made the Stanley Cup playoffs for a 32nd time in 39 seasons. That's a remarkable run, right? 32 postseason appearances over the last 39 seasons. The 32 postseason appearances account for all of the Caps' all-time playoff appearances. And yet, the Caps this season were eliminated in a first or second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for the 29th time in the franchise's 32 all-time postseason appearances. Now think about that for a moment. 29 out of 32. The Caps have made the Stanley Cup playoffs 32 times. 29 of the 32 postseason appearances have ended in a first or second round. The three Caps playoff appearances that did not end in a first or second round, 1990, 1998, and 2018. Now, focus in a bit more. The Caps this season were eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a fourth consecutive year. So, since winning the Stanley Cup in 2018, yes, the Caps have made the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of the four seasons that has followed winning the Cup in 2018, but each of those postseason appearances has ended in a first round. And it's not just that. The Caps this season made the Stanley Cup playoffs for a 14th time over the last 15 seasons in the Alex Ovechkin era. And yet the Caps this season were eliminated in a first or second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a 13th time out of those 14 postseason appearances. The Caps, despite having had one of the greatest players in NHL history, and also despite having had a number of other good players for a 15-year stretch of consistently making the Stanley Cup playoffs, have just one postseason run beyond the second round to show for that 15-year stretch. And thankfully, that run resulted in a Stanley Cup title. But those other postseason appearances have all ended in disappointment to varying degrees. And I bring all of this up not to depress you, okay? I bring all of this up because it's important as a Caps fan to know the facts and to understand the reality and to instead of being like sensitive to the lack of postseason success, to be cognizant of what has happened. The Caps winning the Stanley Cup in 2018 was outstanding, but the rest of the Caps playoff history is brutal. Let's also acknowledge some things about the Caps losing to the Panthers in the first round of this year's playoffs. Uh, First of all, the Caps blew it in this series, okay? I mean, let's just be honest about things here. Uh, Now, yes, the Caps this postseason were the second wildcard team in the Eastern Conference and thus the number eight seed in the East. So this series was a number eight versus number one matchup. The Caps' first round opponent this postseason was the Florida Panthers. They won the President's Trophy for the 2021-2022 NHL regular season due to leading the league with 122 points. But the Caps in this series blew a 2-1 series lead. And it's not just that because a 2-1 series lead obviously isn't insurmountable. But the Caps in this series lost each of the final three games. And the Caps in each of those final three games blew a significant lead either in terms of the time in the game or in terms of the differential in the score. The Caps in their 3-2 overtime loss to the Panthers at Capital One Arena in Game 4 on Monday night, May 9th, blew a 2-1 late third period lead. Ilya Samsonov gave up an even strength goal to Sam Reinhardt, 17-56 into the third period to tie the game at 2. The Caps in their 5-3 loss at the Panthers in Game 5 last Wednesday night blew a 3-0 
second period lead and the Caps in their 4-3 overtime loss to the Panthers at Capital One Arena in Game 6 this past Friday night. Blew a 2-1 third period lead, although the Caps did tie the game at 3 on a TJ Oshie power play goal 18:57 into the third period. We on Sunday morning had the Caps' final media availability of the season. This was Caps head coach Peter Laviolette on Sunday morning on his Caps losing to the Panthers in six games in the first round of the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely you could do the what if I think on on every game, right? You know, on every loss you could do the what if, and so it's. Um, it's, I don't know if that does any good. You can learn from it. You can teach it. But to, to sit here and say the what-ifs, I don't know if that does any good. I definitely think that, you know, we had opportunities to... I think we played well enough in games to, to win, and we didn't get it done. Um, I thought in Game 5 we were doing the right things. Obviously, we talked about that one. That we get off to a... A three nothing lead, and we weren't able to finish it. Um, the last game, I thought was, I thought we did a lot of good things, um, but couldn't close it out. And you had to play catch up in that game. The fourth game, I actually think that maybe that was probably the game we were off the most, but yet we held a one goal lead with two minutes to go. That was the game where I don't think we played as good as we could. Um, game two was a tough one because of the scoreboard, but we're actually, like I said, the. At one point, I think the shots were 24 to 14, and um, but you know, looking back at it in Florida and how they play with the goals that they scored in the regular season, we knew that defense was going to be the priority. We would have to defend, um, realizing that we would most likely get chances and opportunities to score. Um, but if we could defend and do a really good job there, and I think in a lot of situations, even the last game, I think we did. But this is a team that scored 330 or 350 goals. Given the chance to, to score, they can do it. And so it wasn't always about um, it wasn't always about volume. Um, sometimes it was just about opportunity and and not being able to shut down that op- that opportunity where they put it in the net. Yeah, you know, the Caps lost this series against the Panthers despite dominating special teams. This was one of the more bizarre things that I can ever remember in a Caps playoff series. The Caps were great on special teams in this series and yet lost the series, which didn't even go to a seventh game. But the Caps in the series went 18 for 18 on the penalty kill and 7 for 24 on the power play, if I told you before the series began that the Caps in the series were going to end up going 18 for 18 on the penalty kill and 7 for 24 on the power play, would you not have loved the chance for the Caps to pull off the upset of the Panthers in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs? You know, I mentioned TJ Oshie. He incredibly scored a power play goal in each of the final four games in the series. Uh, what a series for Oshie. I mean, remember the talk last offseason of the Caps potentially leaving Oshie unprotected in the expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken? Oshie in this series had a team best six goals. No other Caps player in the series had more than two goals. Uh, Oshie in the series had a team best seven points. Alex Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom in the series each had six points. So if the Caps were so good on special teams in this series, why'd the Caps lose the series? Well, one reason is that the Caps in the series got walloped 
in the puck possession battle. Uh, when I talk about the puck possession battle, I'm generally focusing on five-on-five play, so non-special teams play. Now, in fairness to the Caps, some of them getting walloped in the puck possession battle in this series was by design, as the Caps were content to give up quantity as opposed to quality. And sure enough, the Caps in the series per natural stat trick had 60 high-danger five-on-five shot attempts to the Panthers' 57. Yeah, the Caps in the series actually had more high-danger five-on-five shot attempts than the Panthers had. But the Caps in the series per natural stat trick also had just 237 total five-on-five shot attempts to the Panthers' 301. Uh, That is quite a discrepancy. And if you go by the NHL's official stats, the discrepancy was even worse. The Caps in the series had just 237 five-on-five shot attempts to the Panthers' 305. Also, the Caps in the series for the NHL's official stats had 180 shots on goal to the Panthers' 199. And that was especially bad given that the Caps in the series had the 24 power plays to the Panthers 18. I mean, go back to game four, which was the first of the final three games, all Caps losses uh, in this series. The Caps in their 3-2 overtime loss to the Panthers at Capital One Arena in game four last Monday night, May 9th, got demolished in the puck possession battle. Uh, The Caps for natural stat trick had just 27 five-on-five shot attempts to the Panthers 49, including in the second period, having just two five-on-five shot attempts to the Panthers, 14. Uh, the Caps totaled just 16 shots on goal to the Panthers, 32, including in the second period, having just four shots on goal to the Panthers, 12. The Panthers goaltender, Sergei Bobrovsky, in this game, what ended up being an overtime win, stopped 14 of the 16 shots on goal that he faced. He needed to only make 14 saves to win an overtime game in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Now, speaking of goaltending, So I want to make something clear. Goaltending was not the Caps' biggest problem in this series, but goaltending was the Caps' biggest problem overall in the 2021-2022 NHL season. The biggest reason that the Caps finished the 2021-2022 NHL regular season as the number eight seed in the Eastern Conference, as opposed to a higher seed, was the Caps' goaltending. We, in the NHL's 2021-2022 regular season, had 53 goaltenders each start at least 25 games. Vitek Vanacek, among those goaltenders, finished just 29th in save percentage at 9.08. Ilya Samsonov, among those 53 goaltenders, finished just 46th in save percentage at 8.96. Vitek Vanacek, among those 53 goaltenders, finished 17th in goals against average at 267. Ilya Samsonov, among those 53 goaltenders, finished just 35th in goals against average at 302. The Caps goaltending in the 2021-2022 NHL regular season was not good. And the Caps goaltending in the 2022 Stanley Cup playoffs was not good enough. Uh, Now remember, Vitek Vanacek began the series as the Caps starting goaltender And he was really good in Game 1. That's true. The Caps 4-2 win at the Panthers in Game 1 on May 3rd. Vanacek stopped 30 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. But then Vanacek in the Caps 5-1 loss at the Panthers in Game 2 on May 5th was awful. He stopped just 14 of the 19 shots on goal that he faced and was pulled after two periods in favor of Ilya Samsonov, who in the third period of Game 2 stopped all 17 of the shots on goal that he faced. And then Samsonov ended up being the Caps goaltender 
for the rest of the series. And the results were mixed. Now, Samsonov in Game 3 was lights out. That caps 6-1 win over the Panthers at Capital One Arena in Game 3 on May 7th. Samsonov stopped 29 of the 30 shots on goal that he faced. We had fans at Capital One Arena at one point chanting, Sammy, Sammy. I mean, what a moment that was. Uh, but then Samsonov in the Caps 3-2 overtime loss to the Panthers at Capital One Arena in Game 4 last Monday night, May 9th, stopped 29 of the 32 shots on goal that he faced. Now, all of the goals that he gave up came on high-danger shots on goal as classified by natural stat tricks. So he could have been better, but he also wasn't like awful in that game. But then Samsonov in the Caps' 5-3 loss at the Panthers in Game 5 last Wednesday night stopped just 33 of the 38 shots on goal that he faced. Now, he, for the most part in that game, was let down by those around him as opposed to he himself being really bad. But it wasn't like he, you know, rose to the occasion and made a bunch of spectacular saves either. And then Samsonov in the Caps' 4-3 overtime loss to the Panthers at Capital One Arena in Game 6 this past Friday night stopped just 27 of the 31 shots on goal that he faced. He, per natural stat trick, gave up three goals on high-danger shots on goal, but also gave up a goal on a low-danger shot on goal. He gave up a softie. Uh, Samsonov gave up a bad goal on the Claude Giroux game-tying even-strength goal, 8-18 into the third period to tie the game at two. Samsonov was not at all screened, and yet he allowed the puck to get by him on a wrister by Giroux from the right circle. I mean, your goaltender cannot allow a soft goal like that to tie the score in the third period of an elimination game. And yet that is precisely what Samsonov did. When I think about the Caps' biggest problems right now, I think about three things. Number one, the goaltending, okay, needs to be better. Number two, the Caps' defensemen. They aren't good enough defensively. The Caps have some good offensive defensemen, but the Caps' defensemen aren't good enough defensively to be trusted in front of the questionable goaltending. And then number three, the Caps need to get younger and faster. Addressing all three of these things isn't easy, okay? Pointing these three things out is one thing. Coming up with a realistic and effective plan for addressing these three things is another. Both Ilya Samsonov and Vitek Vanacek are set to be restricted free agents this coming NHL offseason. The Caps took Samsonov with the number 22 pick, in the 2015 NHL draft. You know, this season was only his age 24 season. He is young, but he has been very uneven as an NHL goaltender. And the Caps last offseason very tellingly re-signed Samsonov as a restricted free agent to just a one-year contract. You know, if you're the Caps and you really like the guy, you want to lock him up for years to come. The Caps did not do that last offseason. The Caps last August 9th announced the re-signing of Samsonov to a one-year two million-dollar contract. Uh, The Caps took Vitek Vanacek in the second round of the 2014 NHL draft. This season was his age 26 season. Remember what happened with Vanacek last offseason? The Caps last July 21st lost Vanacek in the expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken, but then the Caps a week later, July 28th, announced having traded a second-round pick in the 2023 NHL draft to the Kraken for Vanacek. So the Caps lost Vanacek in the expansion draft, but then traded back for Vanacek. But neither guy had a great season. I mean, to me, Vanacek was better than Samsonov, but Vanacek ended up getting yanked from this series in the middle of game two. Uh, This was Caps Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan on Sunday morning on the Caps goaltending this season. I mean, inconsistent, I think, you know, it has been. Um, You know, I don't think it was the reason we lost the series. I thought Sammy played well, you know. Uh, Vitek played good in the first game. 
uh, Sammy played, uh, you know, pretty good. I don't think that was a reason we didn't beat Florida. Um, so it's positive for the guys. I mean, during the year, it was probably in and out, um, which is expected for inexperienced goalies, I think. And then take a listen to this. Brian McClellan on Sunday morning on the state of the Caps. Well, I mean, we've lost, you know, in the first round the last four years. So I think, you know, I don't think any we're going to explore changes. Uh, I don't think anything's off the table. I mean, we're going to talk to different teams and monitor the trade market. Yeah. Uh, we're going to identify free agents. Uh, we got to figure out our goalie situation. we got two RFA guys. Yeah. Uh, so we got to make a decision on what to do there. Um, and it's, you know, and fit it in under the cap, too. Yeah. So that was notable for Brian McClellan. Quote, we're going to explore changes. I don't think anything's off the table. End quote. Uh, I have spent a lot of time over the last few days thinking about what should be next for the Caps. And here to me is the bottom line with what should be next for the Caps. There are no easy answers, okay? The Caps right now are too good to just blow up. But they clearly have not been good enough to advance past the first round of each of the last four Stanley Cup playoffs. You know me. Uh, you know that I am not afraid to advocate for one of my teams engaging in an aggressive, no apologies, all-out rebuild, okay? I do not fear the teardown like some people fear the teardown. But, you know, the NHL is different from the NFL, MLB, and the NBA in that in the NHL, just about any team in the playoffs, can win the playoffs. We see upsets in the Stanley Cup playoffs all of the time. And so if you're good enough to make the Stanley Cup playoffs, then you're usually good enough to win the Stanley Cup. You don't have that phenomenon nearly to that extent in the NFL playoffs, the MLB playoffs, and especially the NBA playoffs. I mean, I think this is true. The Caps still are a really good team. The Caps this season made the Stanley Cup playoffs for an eighth consecutive season. And the Caps in each of these seasons has made the Stanley Cup playoffs via a regular season in which the team either reached at least 100 points or tracked to reach at least 100 points over 82 games. Remember, the previous two NHL regular seasons, the 2019-2020 and 2020-2021 NHL regular seasons were shortened regular seasons due to the COVID-19 pandemic. But during this stretch of the Caps making the Stanley Cup playoffs in each of the last eight seasons, the Caps in each of the first seven seasons finished first or second in the Metropolitan Division. You know, the Caps have not just been like sneaking into the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Caps have not just been like backdooring their way into the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Caps consistently have been very good in the regular season. But there's no doubt that the Caps are an older team. And this is dangerous territory for any professional sports team to be in. You're still good, but you're not great, and you're getting older, you know, and slower and more injury prone. I mean, consider the following. Here were the Caps' top 10 point producers in the 2021-2022 NHL regular season with those players' age seasons, okay? Alex Ovechkin, age 36 season. Evgeny Kuznetsov, age 29 season. Defenseman John Carlson, age 32 season. Tom Wilson, age 27 season. Connor Sheary, age 29 season. Defenseman Dmitry Orloff, age 30 season. Lars Eller, age 32 season. Nicholas Backstrom, age 34 season. Garnett Hathaway, age 30 season. TJ Oshie, age 35 season. The Caps are an older team. 
And winning with age in sports isn't easy. Okay, Now, it's not impossible, but it isn't easy. This is Peter Laviolette on Sunday morning on the Caps' core guys, many of whom are 30 or older. I thought that the, the core and the guys that you're talking about, I thought that they played really well this year. And I thought they played hard in the playoffs. And um, when you lose, it's probably easy to ask that question. Um, but I, I'd, I'd like to go. I mean, I'd like to open up another seven-game series tomorrow against Florida if they'd let us. But they won't. And so we have to fight for the playoffs again next year with that core and with that group. You think about you know, some of the things. John Carlson had his second best year, I think, as a pro. Ovi got to 50 goals and a lot of points for um, maybe maybe the most in a few years. <clears throat> Tom Wilson had a, a year. TJ Oshie, I thought, was probably our most noticeable player through the course of the playoffs. So yeah, I'd like to I'd like to go with those guys again, and um, I think that. Um, Nick had a Nick Backstrom had a had a tough year because of his hip and the the summer that he had to have and the the missing the games to start. Um, but he he gave everything he had in the playoffs. He still produced for us. He was still able to generate. And um, I thought these guys played hard. I don't think you know back to TJ's point. I don't think that they're you know they took it for granted or we just you know, showed up because they said be there at seven. I thought that they were committed to it. And um, there was times where there were games where we won and there was times where I thought we played well enough to win, but we didn't. And that doesn't mean anything. And so um, I think I think the core is a, a group that can still be successful. Yeah, I mean, at least Peter Laviolette right there did not sound like the head coach of a team that's about to blow things up. Now, granted, Peter Laviolette isn't the Caps' general manager. Ryan McClellan is the Caps' general manager. He is the Caps' senior vice president and general manager. But I would be surprised if McClellan feels appreciably different than Laviolette feels. I can't kill the Caps for not blowing this thing up. Given the nature of the Stanley Cup playoffs and given how good the Caps still are, I don't think you have to blow this all up. But here's the thing. If you're not going to blow this all up, given the age of this team, given the extreme win-now nature of the team, you have to go all in on trying to win now. And that includes doing whatever it takes to upgrade your goaltending. You can't just run it back next season with Vitek Vanacek and Ilya Samsonov and close your eyes and cross your fingers and hope for the best, okay? Not with guys like Alex Ovechkin and Nicholas Backstrom and TJ Oshie in their mid-30s and people like John Carlson and Dmitry Orlov already in their 30s, okay? There needs to be an extreme urgency with the Caps this offseason to improve on the deficiencies of the team and try to make that one last run beyond the second round in the Stanley Cup playoffs. And maybe you have multiple runs beyond the second round of the Stanley Cup playoffs moving forward. Who knows? Uh, Some injury notes for the Caps. So like I said, we on Sunday morning had the Caps' final media availability of the season. It is at an NHL team's final media availability after the team season is over that you finally get honesty about injuries, okay? No pro sports league cloaks its injuries in secrecy more than the NHL does. But at the end of an NHL team season, you finally get honesty about 
the team's injuries. So Tom Wilson, uh, he did not play in each of the final five games in the series against the Panthers due to a lower body injury that he suffered in the Caps 4-2 win at the Panthers in Game 1 on May 3rd. Wilson on Sunday morning revealed that he suffered a significant knee injury, wasn't sure if he would need surgery. And the way he and others talked about the injury, this does appear to have been a very serious knee injury that Wilson suffered. So we certainly hope for the best there. Uh, Alex Ovechkin, so he played in every game of the series against the Panthers off, remember, having missed the Caps' final three games of the regular season due to an upper body injury. Uh, Ovechkin on Sunday morning revealed that the upper body injury was in fact a left shoulder injury, which was what a lot of people suspected. So Ovechkin in the series against the Panthers, one goal and five assists. He was number two on the Caps with 19 shots on goal. I did not think that he had a bad series. You know, did he have the best series that he's ever had in the Stanley Cup playoffs? No, but he was an overall positive for the Caps in this series. Here was Peter Laviolette on Sunday morning on whether Ovechkin's left shoulder injury was an issue this postseason. I think I think Alex was I think he was getting there. It was never an issue that we talked about it, but there was definitely a problem that happened. Um, uh, he played through it. He had to get work done to, to play through it. But then, you know, in the first minute of the game, he went in and tried to run somebody into next week. And so he tried to play his game. Um, you know, Alex is probably judged most by goals, right? Because he's he's a goal scorer. But he created a lot. He had a lot of assists, a lot of primary assists. He created a lot of physicality. Um, you know, would he have liked to have scored more? I'm sure. But... Again, I thought that he, he worked, he was engaged, he was physical, um, he made nice plays and nice passes and set things up for us. Yeah, Alex Ovechkin overall, to me, did not have a bad series. I mean, remember what he did in the Caps' 4-2 win at the Panthers in Game 1 on May 3rd. Ovechkin returned from his three-game absence with a left shoulder injury. He had a primary assist, he had four shots on goal, he had a game-high nine-shot attempts, he had four hits, and the primary assist, remember, was a thing of beauty as he in the neutral zone poked the puck away from Mackenzie Wieger, leading to a one-on-none breakaway and even-strand goal for Evgeny Kuznetsov. Uh, two other injury notes for the Caps. So Nicholas Backstrom, you may recall he missed the Caps' first 28 games of this past regular season due to having been out since the start of 2022 Capitals training camp due to ongoing rehabilitation of his hip. Uh, Backstrom underwent hip surgery in May 2015, Brian McClellan in a press conference this past September 23rd said that Backstrom was dealing with wear and tear on the hip off that surgery. Well, Backstrom on Sunday morning said, quote, the hip's not going to be 100%. That's something we all know. Some days are good. Some days are less good. That's just life, end quote. So right there is a perfect example of a guy who has been great for the Caps in Backstrom, but he's in his mid-30s, and now he's dealing with this ailing hip, you know? Like, what says age more than someone dealing with an ailing hip, right? My hip hurts. Well, Nicholas Backstrom has a chronically bad hip at this point. Um, It's unfortunate. Now, he can still be a very good player. He was very good for stretches for the Caps this season, but the hip is a thing with Backstrom moving forward. And then there's Carl Haglin, and this is scary and actually in some ways sad. So Haglin did not play again this season after suffering a left eye injury at Caps practice on March 1st, Hanglin on Sunday morning revealed that he has undergone two surgeries and is not expected to get 100% of his vision back in the eye. He hopes to continue 
his career. Hopes. Uh, just a brutal situation for Carl Hagelin. So we obviously wish him the best as well. A lot of questions for the Caps moving forward, and there are no obvious or easy answers. Up next, I'm talking Nationals, including their two-faced offense. Uh, when it's good, it's great, but when it's bad, it's awful. And we saw both the good and the bad on display in the Nats losing two or three games to the Houston Astros at Nationals Park over the weekend in a rematch of the 2019 World Series. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, the Nationals over the weekend had a three-game series against the Houston Astros at Nationals Park in a series filled with storylines. So if you like to have stories told to you, this was the series for you. Uh, we had the storyline of the Astros manager being former Nats manager Dusty Baker, who was making his return to Nationals Park as an opposing manager for the first time since the Nats uh, parted ways with Dusty uh, as the Nats manager after their 2017 season. We had the storyline of the Nats facing the Astros in a non-exhibition game for the first time since the Nats beat the Astros in seven games in the 2019 World Series. We had the storyline of the Nats in that 2019 World Series, remember, notching all four of their wins on the road and having gone 0-3 at Nationals Park. And we have the storyline of the Astros coming into this series with a 10-game winning streak. There was a lot to be thinking about with this Nats-Astros series, but ultimately what we got was a series loss for the Nats. An impressive win sandwiched between two bad losses. Friday night, a 6-1 loss. Saturday night, a 13-6 win. Sunday afternoon, an 8 nothing loss. So the Nats did end what ended up being an 11-game winning streak for the Astros. Uh, also, the 2022 rebuilding Nats did do what the 2019 World Series champion Nats did not do, and that is beat the Astros at Nationals Park. But what this series, to me, really ended up being was a reminder of the two very different paths 
that these two franchises have gone down since that 2019 World Series. I mean, the Nats since the 2019 World Series essentially have fallen apart and have entered into a rebuild. Uh, the Astros since the 2019 World Series somehow, some way, <laughs> still are going strong. I mean, that really is something when you consider the Astros since that 2019 World Series have had the cheating scandal that caused the team its general manager, Jeff Luno, and manager, A.J. Hinch. Uh, the Astros since the 2019 World Series have lost a number of big-name players in free agency, uh, namely starting pitchers Garrett Cole and Zach Granke, outfielder George Springer, shortstop Carlos Correa. And yet here we are. The Astros have made the playoffs in each of the last five seasons, including losing in the World Series in two of the last three seasons. Uh, the Astros this season now are 23-12. and 12. Meantime, the Nats are in a rebuild. They this season now are 12-24. and 24. They are last in the National League East. They have an NL East worst run differential of minus 36. Uh, two teams, one World Series, two very different paths since that World Series. You know, it's funny with the Nats right now. They are so Jekyll and Hyde offensively. The Nats in a given game this season either are like great offensively or are horrible offensively. It feels like it's one extreme or the other. The Nats in their win in this series against the Astros at Nationals Park were really good offensively. This was a Saturday night game. The Nats in that game, 13 runs, 14 hits, five walks, five for 11 with runners in scoring position. You know, you look at the Nats this season. So the Nats started the season six and seven. Since that six and seven start to the season, the Nats are just six and 17, which is atrocious, obviously. But here are the Nats run totals in each of the team's most recent six wins. 14, 11, 10, 7, 8, and 13. The Nats can score a lot of runs. And when the Nats score a lot of runs, the Nats win. The problem is that the Nats don't score a lot of runs often enough, uh, as seen in games one and three of this series against the Astros at Nationals Park. The 6-1 loss on Friday night and the 8-0 loss on Sunday afternoon. So the Nats in their 8-0 loss on Sunday afternoon scored no runs, totaled just four hits, all of which were singles, worked four walks, went 0 for 5 with runners in scoring position. Uh, Riley Adams on Sunday afternoon was an at starting catcher and number eight batter. He went one for three with a single. The single broke up a no-hit bid by the Astros starting pitcher Justin Verlander. Uh, Adams in the bottom of the fifth, a one-out full count single through the left side of the infield to end Verlander's attempt at a no-hitter. What a season Justin Verlander is having. This is his age 39 season. This is his comeback season from Tommy John surgery. And yet Justin Verlander now, this season, over seven starts, has an ERA of 138. He has been outstanding so far this season. But the Astros on Sunday afternoon smashed four home runs. And I tell you, watching the Astros over the weekend really reinforced how lacking the Nats have been in hitting home runs so far this season, even though the Nats on Saturday night did hit two homers. But the Nats this season, over 36 games, have hit a total of 26 homers. The Astros this season, over 35 games, have hit a total of 48 homers. The Astros have played one less game than the Nats have played, and yet the Astros have hit 22 more homers than the Nats have hit. Uh, Juan Soto had another just so-so series, especially by his standards. Uh, he was an ad starting right fielder and number two batter at all three games in the series. Soto went two for 10 with a double, a single, and three walks. He on Sunday afternoon went 0 for 4 
left four men on base. Uh, Josh Bell had a so-so series by his standards this season. Bell was an ad starting first baseman and number three batter in all three games in the series. He went three for 12 with three singles and a walk. Uh, Nelson Cruz did have a big game on Saturday night, three for four with a three-run double, two singles and a walk. And he on Friday night went two for four with two singles, but Cruz on Sunday afternoon, 0 for four. Uh, He was an ad starting DH and number four batter at all three games in the series. He has been better lately off a woeful start to his season, but we got to see more from Nelson Cruz so that the Nats, remember, can flip him before that MLB trade deadline, which this year will be on August 2nd at 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, Another thing that really stood out to me in this series loss for the Nats to the Astros at Nationals Park over the weekend, the Nats defense, and not in a good way. Uh, Way too many bad defensive moments for the Nats in this series. Take the 8-0 loss on Sunday afternoon. Two bad defensive moments, neither of which technically was an error. Uh, The Nats' first baseman, Josh Bell, he in an Astros two-run fifth had a bad defensive play. Uh, Chaz McCormick in that inning stole second base on a botched pickoff by the Nats. Patrick Corbin got McCormick in a rundown, but then Bell made a really bad throw to second baseman Cesar Hernandez, and McCormick was safe. Bell stepped to his left to make the throw, and he then essentially submarined the throw high and way left. I mean, that's an out that should have been had, ended up not being had, thanks to the bad throw by Josh Bell. Uh, Also, third baseman Michael Franco on Sunday afternoon. He, in the top of the eighth on a leadoff first pitch infield single by Oledmiz Diaz, made an errant throw that took Josh Bell off first base. Now, Franco was not charged with an error, but he could have been charged with an error. In fact, initially was charged with an error. Uh, There's another play right there that, you know, maybe was not like right there to be made because Diaz may still have been safe, even if Franco had made a good throw, but you would have liked to have seen a good throw by Franco. So at least the play is close. Uh, Now look, Michael Franco came up big on Saturday night. He in that game as an ad starting third baseman and number seven batter went two for five with a two run homer and an RBI double, uh, though he did strike out three times. And, you know, he has been guilty of some sloppy defense at third base. Heck, the Nats were sloppy defensively in their 13-6 win on Saturday night. Uh, Yadiel Hernandez in an Astros two-run eighth on Saturday night committed a really bad fielding error. Uh, He, on the warning track, just dropped a fly ball off the bat of Nico Goodrum on an 0-2 pitch from Tanner Rainey to begin the top of the eighth inning. I mean, that play was amateur hour. You know, that's a routine play that Yadiel Hernandez just whiffed on. Uh, Now look, Yadiel, like Michael Franco, was an offensive force on Saturday night. So I want to give Yadiel credit for that. He in that game as an at starting left fielder and number five batter went two for five with a three-run homer and an RBI single. But if you know Yadiel, you know that he's not known for his defense and he had a really bad error on Saturday night. Also on Saturday night, the Nats center fielder, Victor Robles, who is known for his defense. Uh, He in an Astros two-run fourth, completely lost a lazy fly ball in shallow right center field for a one-out first pitch double by Kyle Tucker off Eric Fetty. I mean, that play, that play goes down as a double. That's not a double. That's a fly ball that somebody should have caught, but Robles lost in the sky, and the Nats right fielder, Juan Soto, seemed to lose in the sky as well. Uh, now, Robles on Saturday night, like Michael Franco on Saturday night, like Yadiel Hernandez on Saturday night, had success as a batter. Robles on Saturday night, two for four with a two-run single and a bunt single. But Robles, like Franco and Hernandez in this series, also had a bad defensive moment. Uh, as for the Nats pitching in this series against the Astros, uh, well, the Nats pitching was very mixed in this series. So Josiah Gray in game one got off to a nightmare of a start 
but then ended up being quite good. Gray in the 6-1 loss to the Astros at Nationals Park on Friday night. Six runs in six innings, but he allowed five of the runs in the top of the first. He, over his final five innings, allowed just one run. In fact, Gray retired 16 of the final 20 batters he faced. This was really odd. Gray in the top of the first allowed five runs on two homers, two doubles, and a single. And then, like, everything changed. I mean, this reeked of Josiah Gray tipping his pitches in the top of the first, fixing that problem, because he was a totally different pitcher as the outing went on. Uh, he did give up a run in the top of the third on a one-out solo homer by Jordan Alvarez to dead center field for a 6-0 Astros lead. And that homer was some shot when it projected 438 feet per stat cast. But Gray ended up being a totally different guy innings two through six as opposed to inning number one. I mean, how often do you see that, by the way? A starter gives up five runs in the first inning, but ends up pitching for six innings. I mean, that in and of itself uh, was strange. Uh, Josiah Gray, over seven starts this season, now has an ERA of 434. Uh, Eric Fetty in game two labored big time. Fetty in the 13-6 win over the Astros at Nationals Park on Saturday night. Three runs in four innings. He, over the four innings, threw 82 pitches, just 46 strikes, versus 36 balls. He gave up five hits, a homer, two doubles, and two singles. He issued three walks. He did have six strikeouts, which helped to drive up that pitch count. But Fetty just had to work for like everything he got in this game. You know, he began his outing with three scoreless innings, but he tossed a scoreless top of the first despite issuing three consecutive one-out walks to load the bases. And the three straight one-out walks came on a total of just 14 pitches. So Fetty, over those three batters, threw two strikes versus 12 balls. So, you know, Fetty ultimately had run prevention that could have been a lot worse. Three runs in four innings, given how much he was laboring out there. But, you know, you obviously would like for your starter in a game to last for more than four innings. Uh, Fetty in the top of the fourth allowed two runs. Fetty in the top of the fifth gave up a leadoff homer to Jose Siri to center field to cut the Nats lead to 7-3 and then got pulled from the game in favor of Josh Rogers. Uh, that was some shot by Siri. The homer winner projected 427 feet per stat cast. Uh, Fetty now over seven starts this season has an ERA of 424. And then we had Patrick Corbin in game three of this series. And Corbin started off well, but ultimately ended up struggling. Uh, Corbin in the 8 nothing loss to the Astros at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon, five runs in six innings. Uh, he began his outing with four scoreless innings, but he then allowed five runs over the fifth, sixth, and seventh innings. Uh, Corbin gave up six hits, three homers, and three singles. He issued two walks. He had five strikeouts. He threw 86 pitches, 54 strikes versus 32 balls. He began his outing with the four scoreless innings, but Corbin then in the top of the fifth allowed two runs. He issued a one-out six-pitch walk of Chaz McCormick, despite McCormick having been down to the count at 1.02. Then McCormick stole second base on the botched pickoff play by the Nats. And then Corbin gave up a one-out two-run homer to Martin Maldonado on a bomb to left field to give the Astros a 2-0 lead. The homer winner projected 423 feet for stat cast. Uh, Corbin in the top of the six gave up a two-out solo homer to Yuli Gurriel to left field for a 3-0 Astros lead, despite Gurriel having been down to the count at one point, one two. And then Corbin in the top of the seventh gave up two runs. He issued a leadoff six-pitch walk of Jose Siri, despite Siri having been down to the count at 1.02. And then Corbin gave up another homer, a two-run homer to Chaz McCormick 
to left center field to give the Astros a 5-0 lead. And then Davey Martinez pulled Corbin in favor of Austin Voth, who had his own problems. Uh, he ended up allowing two runs in what ended up being a four-run Astros seventh. Here was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon on Patrick Corbin. You know, kept the ball down like we talked about. Um, you know, uh, the biggest thing at the end that is, was the walk in that one inning and then the you know, one pitch you know, right down the middle, home run, and then after that, everything just got up on him. So, but early on in the game, I mean, he's, he's pitching really well. What did you like the most about his early innings? Man, he was he was pitching the contact. You know, his pitch count was down. He I mean everything was everything was working. Like I said, everything was down in the zone. Um, made some really good pitches. Um, so um, once again, you know, um, they, they did well and then uh, they scored the two runs. And then uh, you know, we're down three runs. We thought we could get him to the seventh inning, which would have been great. Um, it just didn't happen. No, it did not. Uh, Patrick Corbin now, over eight starts this season, has an ERA of 628. He has been better overall over his last four starts as compared to what we had seen from him earlier this season. But still, Patrick Corbin, eight starts into this season, has an ERA of 628. He is in the midst of a third consecutive really bad season. You know, Corbin on Sunday afternoon faced the Astros for the first time since Game 7 of the 2019 World Series. Corbin in that game, what was a 6-2 Nats win at the Astros in World Series Game 7, October 30th, 2019. Three scoreless innings of relief with three strikeouts. Patrick Corbin was so good for the Nats in that 2019 postseason, especially when used out of the bullpen. A starter used out of the bullpen in key spots that October. So valuable was Corbin to the Nats winning that World Series. Well, Corbin's career since the 2019 World Series has plummeted. And it's really something to see this, you know? ERA of 628 so far this season, off him being really bad in the 2020 season, ERA of 466, and then even worse in the 2021 season, ERA of 582, which was the worst ERA among qualified pitchers in the majors, and he finished with that 582 ERA despite pitching well in four of his five starts last September. Here was Davey Martinez during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon on the 2019 Patrick Corbin versus the 2022 Patrick Corbin. You know, 2019 right now doesn't look really any 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 different than what he's doing right now. I mean, it really doesn't. I mean, he's throwing his sliders are better, spin rates better on the slider. Um, he's keeping the ball down. It's just it's just repeating that inning after inning. You know, like I said, he he did really well for the first four innings. He walks walks a guy, you know, and, and just makes one mistake. A guy hits a home run. Um, then again, you know that. Okay, we're down two nothing, you know. Um, but then he comes back out there, and then every everything started getting up on him. So uh, it's just repeating everything he's done from the first inning till till the sixth or seventh inning. Um, but you know, like I said, I like where I like where he's at because of the you know he's he's attacking the strike zone, and um, I think he, you know he had like seventy seven pitches going into the you know, to the sixth inning, and you know if he can continue to do that, we score him some runs. We'll be we'll be in really good shape. Yeah, you know, to me, just hearing all that, hearing a lot of what Davey Martinez had to say during his postgame press conference on Sunday afternoon about Patrick Corbin, it's just sad how far the bar for Corbin has been lowered. I mean, this is a guy in year four of a six-year, $140 million contract 
that he signed as a free agent with the Nats in December 2018. Remember, Patrick Corbin was the Nats' opening game starter for this season. He, in theory, is the Nats' ace, and yet he's anything but an ace. And uh, the fact that like he gets talked up after a start in which he gives up five runs in six innings, that's just where we are right now with Patrick Corbin, and it's a real shame. Uh, the Nats' bullpen in this series loss to the Astros at Nationals Park was good in Game 1, uh, meh in Game 2, and then not good in Game 3. The uh, 6-1 loss to the Astros at Nationals Park on Friday night, three Nats relievers combined for three scoreless innings. Uh, those relievers were Victor Arano, Josh Rogers, and Paolo Espino. The 13-6 win over the Astros at Nationals Park on Saturday night, five Nats relievers combined to allow three runs, one earned in five innings, although the five relievers combined to give up seven hits a walk and a hit by pitch. So you didn't have a lot in the way of clean performances by Nats relievers on Saturday night. Uh, Josh Rogers in the top of the fifth, faced four batters, got three outs, but Steve Ciszek in the top of the sixth gave up a run on four singles. Carl Edwards Jr. did toss a scoreless top of the seventh. Tanner Rainey in the top of the eighth allowed two runs, both of which were unearned thanks to that fielding error by Yadiel Hernandez in left field. But Rainey did give up a one-out RBI triple to Jose Siri down the left field line on a 1-2 pitch to cut the Nats' lead to 13-5. And then Erasmo Ramirez tossed a scoreless top of the ninth. And then in the 8-0 loss to the Astros at Nationals Park on Sunday afternoon, three Nats relievers combined to allow three runs in three innings. Uh, I mentioned Austin Voth struggling. He and that Astros four-run seventh allowed two runs on three singles and a walk to put the Nats down 7-0. Kyle Finnegan tossed a scoreless top of the eighth with two strikeouts, despite that uh, Michael Franco errant throw that took Josh Bell off first base on the leadoff first pitch infield single by Aledmus Diaz. And then Paolo Espino in the top of the ninth gave up a first pitch leadoff homer to Jose Altuve to left field for an 8-0 Astros lead. Uh, Next up for the Nats, a six-game road trip, a three-game series at the Miami Marlins, followed by a three-game series at the Milwaukee Brewers. Game one at the Marlins, Monday evening at 640. Aaron Sanchez will be the Nats' starting pitcher. Well, bad weekend for the Orioles. Uh, They got swept in three games at the Detroit Tigers. Friday night, a 4-2 loss. Saturday, a 3-0 loss. Sunday afternoon, a 5-1 loss. The Tigers this season are terrible. Uh, The Tigers, even with this three-game sweep, are just 12-23 this season. And yet, the O's got swept at the Tigers over the weekend. Now, we know it's not like the O's are great this year, okay? The O's this season now are 14 and 21, but things had been going well for the O's. Uh, Things did not go well for the O's over the weekend, and the O's right now really are banged up. Uh, They are missing a number of players. The Orioles hitting this season has not been good. Their hitting at the Tigers over the weekend was especially bad, and at least some of that had to do with some key guys being out. Outfielder Austin Hayes did not play at all in this series due to a left-hand laceration. The O's on Friday afternoon plays first baseman and left fielder Ryan Mountcastle on the 10-day injured list with a left wrist slash left forearm strain. Uh, Mountcastle has struggled so far this season. 28 games, 117 plate appearances, a batting average of 268, but an on-base percentage of just 299, a slugging percentage of just 402. Uh, Mountcastle last season hit 33 home runs, set a new Orioles record for most home runs by a player in his rookie season. The previous record was Cal Ripken Jr.'s 28 homers in 1982. And then shortstop Jorge Mateo left 
The Orioles 5-1 loss at the Tigers on Sunday afternoon due to left shoulder and chest contusions that were suffered on a collision with Tigers first baseman Spencer Torkelson on a bunt attempt by Mateo. And so the O's were horrendous offensively in this series. The O's over the three games totaled just three runs, went 16 for 94 with 11 walks and 30 strikeouts. Uh, The O's this season now have a team OPS of just six 46. Offense is down across the majors so far this season. The O's have been particularly bad offensively so far this season. Uh, The Orioles starting pitching in the series was not good in games one and three, was good in game two. Uh, Jordan Lyles in the 4-2 loss at the Tigers on Friday night, four runs in five and two-thirds innings. He gave up six hits, a homer, two doubles, and three singles. He issued three walks. He did have six strikeouts. He allowed just one run over his first five innings, but then in the bottom of the six was charged with three runs, including giving up a one-out solo homer to Miguel Cabrera. Lyles over seven starts this season has an ERA of 438. Bruce Zimmerman in the three-nothing loss at the Tigers on Saturday was good. Again, uh, three runs, two earned in six innings. He gave up seven hits, two homers, a double, and four singles. He issued just one walk, did record just two strikeouts. He got pulled after 80 pitches, but ultimately, I mean, three runs, two earned in six innings. Bruce Zimmerman over seven starts this season, ERA of 272. And then Tyler Wells in the 5-1 loss at the Tigers on Sunday afternoon had problems. Three runs in four innings. Now, he issued no walks, but he gave up eight hits, a homer, two doubles, and five singles. He recorded just two strikeouts. He did throw 49 strikes versus 22 balls over 71 pitches. But this was a disappointing outing for Wells, given how well, no pun intended, uh, he had been pitching. Tyler Wells had been good in each of his previous three starts as he's making this transition from reliever to starter. Wells in a 5-2 loss at the New York Yankees on April 27th, two runs in five innings. Uh, Wells in a 2-1 loss to the Minnesota Twins at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on May 2nd, one run in five innings. And Wells in a 6-1 win over the Kansas City Royals at Oriole Park at Camden Yards last Monday afternoon, May 9th, one run in six innings, but he had problems on Sunday afternoon. Next up for the O's, a stretch of 15 consecutive games against teams in the American League East. First up, a seven-game homestand, a four-game series against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards, followed by a three-game series against the Tampa Bay Rays at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Game one against the Yankees at Camden Yards, Monday night at 7.05. Kyle Bradish will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tuesday show, episode 316. will feature more on the Commanders. Also, will feature a special guest to talk capitals. Peter Hassett, co-founder of Russian Machine Never Breaks, which is an outstanding blog about the Caps. Uh, Peter is great at talking Caps, knows and understands hockey analytics really well. We'll discuss what should be next for the Caps, off them being eliminated in the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs for a fourth consecutive year and much more. And I, on Tuesday's show, will talk Nationals and Orioles. The Nats on Monday evening at 6.40 will begin a three-game series at the Miami Marlins. The O's on Monday night will begin a four-game series against the New York Yankees at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. Have a great rest of your Monday, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. 
The Washington Commanders have surprise Super Bowl contender written all over them. The reason they went and got Carson Wentz is because if he plays like he did last year, they will at least be in playoff contention because it was better than the quarterback play they had last year. But if he can turn the clock back, to 2017, where he was an MVP candidate, he can help lead the Washington Commanders on a deep playoff push. 